go watch a trailer. Every single thing that you are watching right there is in fact data. And the way that that was made in its supply chain was driven by data. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Data Masters podcast from Tamer. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Mark Marinelli, the head of product at Tamer, who's going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's episode. Mark, how are you? I'm doing fine, Nate. So not many people think of media and entertainment uh, as an industry that is run by data. Um, we think about Hollywood, we think about movies, actors, scripts, there's a ton of unstructured data there for sure. Um, but as a, organizations try to leverage their data for competitive advantage, capturing mindshare, et cetera, we don't really think of that facet of the media and, and entertainment industry. Um, but the reality is that behind the scenes, there's a huge infrastructure, a very complex supply chain of data that helps shape what trailers you watch, what gets shown in your local theater, and what date these blockbusters are going to be released on. So today we've got Eric Iverson, former CIO and CTO at the top talent agency, Creative Artists Agency, or, or CAA. He's going to take us on a whirlwind tour of all of the different facets of this data supply chain in the media and entertainment industry and talk about how Hollywood has historically leveraged their data and some of the more recent advancements they've made in being able to drive really interesting outcomes with the data that they are, are constantly collecting from us, their consumers. Let's get to it then. Here is Eric Iverson. Eric, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm so glad to be here today. Uh, I love this topic of data. I um, started working on data probably um, very heavily back in 1996. Um, not counting all the work we do in college, of course, but um, when I was working at uh, Accenture, which was Anderson Consulting at the time, and uh, started working on my uh, first analytics project back then, and I kind of got hooked on it. Um, as the years moved forward, I eventually moved over to Sony Pictures, and pretty early on, um, really back in 2001, um, got very heavily involved in all of our uh, data projects, um, basically digital and data projects. Um, and the reason for that was um, the industry was about ready to go into a major shift. Uh, I was working on some of the strategy projects then. And um, two things were pretty obvious to all of us in the industry. One is that the industry was going to transform to all digital workflows. Um, or if you think about that, all data workflows. And the second uh, is that it was going to be data that was going to drive those digital workflows. And uh, and we used to talk back then, um, which you could understand now, which is if you can imagine uh, if if all of your product is digital and everything that you're moving is all of these digital assets around, but none of it was described, you have a lot of assets that you can't find anywhere and you wouldn't be able to move them around. So that's when I got pretty heavily involved in uh, you know, all of our core data projects at Sony Pictures. Um, and uh, really pretty much uh, that was most of my career at, at Sony was, uh, was kind of focused on data and digital, uh, eventually becoming the um, CIO for Sony Pictures Television and then uh, moved over to CAA um, in uh, 19, uh, or sorry, in, in 2016 and, uh, similar kind of opportunity, which, uh, was, was great to kind of be able to, 
take some of those learnings and then move them upstream with a, a very talented team that I ended up uh, having the good fortune to get to work with um, and uh, have uh, continued to do that in the industry. In between, um, yeah, I have been involved in a lot of the uh, industry initiatives uh, in and around data, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. We talk uh, a little bit about how media entertainment works. So entertainment isn't the first industry that people think of when they think of big data. Take us through it then. Uh, in what ways are you leveraging big data and analytics? Yeah, you know, um, it's such a great question. I think that um, a couple of things, you know, one for the listeners would be simply let's ground ourselves. If, if you were out there right now not driving and listening to this, I would say take one second, pause this podcast uh, and go watch a trailer and uh, your favorite film coming up. And, um, it, and as you're interacting with that trailer, I want you to think about the fact that every single thing that you are watching right there is, in fact, data. Uh, and the way that that was made in its supply chain was driven by data. In media entertainment today, our product is 100 data at the end of the day. And uh, that's the way it is today. But that's not uh, the industry's relationship with data goes way back. And, uh, and if anything, it's one of the industries that we've loved data about for a long time, but we never really have thought about it that way. So if you go back all the way in history, we started tracking box office. It's kind of like a, a box score in a baseball game. Back in the um, and this, is, uh, this has been really important benchmarks for the way that we start to measure how everything uh, works in our industry. And, uh, you know, you keep moving forward on that. Um, very, very soon after the invention of television, uh, we started doing things like Nielsen ratings and being able to do audience measurement. And all of these things were kind of the box scores and really understanding kind of what our audiences wanted. So for a long time in the history of media entertainment, we've been enamored with data. Uh, we've all the all of the studios have always had research groups that have been very focused on that and pulling data and understanding what audiences like and, and don't like and using that information to um, to actually market the film and even alter production. One of my favorite films of all time, because I'm a baseball player, uh, is The Natural. And um, to give you uh, an idea of how much of an impact actually data can have or research can have. Uh, into that is um, the entire film, The Natural, the, the ending was rewritten based on research and, and data. Um, they went out and did panels and discovered that people didn't like the sad ending that was based on the original book. And so they actually rewrote it to a happy ending. And it's now known. I mean, I don't think anyone could watch the movie The Natural uh, and not imagine uh, the, uh, the happy ending at the end of The Natural. But if you went back and read the book, that's not how that story ends. So we've had a very tight relationship with uh, the data a long time. You start moving into our digital age, and, and all of a sudden now you find it uh, pervasive pretty much across the entire industry. Right. Nowadays, I imagine that because you know the indus entertainment industry is so big, you must have so many different players, lots of stakeholders and, and data silos that may not have been made interoperable with one another. How do you get diverse data silos to work together? And what good can come from doing so? Such a good question. I think, you know, you start looking at uh, the supply chain, and you hit the nail, nail on the head, which is, is that um, it is, it is an industry with a lot of players in it. So we have all these players and kind of by analogy, um, we, we have supply chains that kind of have to move from phase to phase. So if I took it a high level, you would say 
great for those companies that are at the beginning of this process, like the CAA. Um, they're interested in trying to figure out what are all the opportunities out there that we can match make. They're either creating opportunities or they're matchmaking opportunities with the world's greatest talent. Um, that's kind of one ex example of that. And so you can imagine their part of the supply chain is yeah, the simple question of what are all the opportunities? And if you ask that question on a global scale, that's a pretty difficult question to answer. Imagine that, like, what are all of the opportunities to potentially produce something for all the audiences on, on planet Earth? And where are the talent and where are the opportunities? So that's kind of a difficult question to answer. The CAA uh, would have, has all these amazing relationships. Uh, and that's one of the things that it does incredibly well. So obviously tracking uh, all of that and making sure that they have the best information is really important. But in today's world, uh, that's moving so quickly with so many you know, productions and uh, entertainment opportunities, uh, being able to track that on a global scale and matching that against uh, your, your talent is super important to be able to be that organized. So that's kind of the first thing. And you can imagine there's data providers out there that provide some insights into that um, that you can get um, from different places and you have to glean that. So an example might be, you know, uh, coming out of the U.S. but going into some, let's say, uh, European territories, you know, you might have to start doing tracking things like asking the question of like, great, who's who's been producing some really interesting um, film or pictures in some territories uh, across the world on some smaller channels that are becoming bigger? Right, that um, as that opportunity grows, and um, so you would, you know, instead of you know just sending scores of human beings out there, you also might be able to leverage some data sources to to start understanding that. Then, once you finally get all of that uh, packaged up so that you can get people together and produce things, uh, you move into production. This is where it gets so much more complicated than I think most people understand. The the, the production process in and of itself. Uh, has two things that make it hard. One is that there's so many components up to that. And today it's gotten a lot more complicated. And in addition to that, the stakes are higher and that we're trying to drive the, the timelines down uh, as quickly as possible. Think of it as like a manufacturing supply chain. But what does that look like in storytelling? And in the storytelling business, you know, you have stories that you have to kind of start off with, but um, then you're having to assemble all of your teams and you're, you're storyboarding things and you have to figure out your set design and you have to go find locations for places. And then you're going to cast and try to get the right casting for all of these. These are all things that are happening kind of early on in this kind of pre-production leading into production. Um, and as you can imagine, each one of these things has lots of data behind it. Uh, if you went to any of the studios, you're going to find that um, like Sony would have, they're going to have an entire library of what they have for costumes. There's costume databases and they have location databases for kind of where all these things can be shot uh, in different locations. Um, you have props and everything else that you can imagine that you can, can use into a production. Um, that is just now the tip of the iceberg as we've moved into digital production. Now you start having all kind of this visual effects. You have lots of shots and because you can imagine, um, you know, what do you think happened when all of a sudden digital photography came out compared to film photography? We got a lot more footage than we ever had before. So when we had film photography, you know, you could shoot, uh, a, you know, a shot, um, uh, you know, during the day, and it's going to cost you a decent amount of money because you're paying for the film. But once the, the price of actually shooting on live film almost vanished, and now we're just down to hard drive space, the cost of shooting lots and lots and lots and lots of footage 
um, when that went through the through the floor, the amount of content we produced went through the ceiling. And so now we have so much more content in the production process than we ever had before. And then now you're trying to layer that on in workflows with kind of visual effects and all of the editing work. And then as you can imagine, as we're gonna lead into distribution, the marketing teams want access to material earlier and earlier and earlier. And your your audience sees this. I mean, how many people, whether it was Star Wars, imagine your last big film that came out last year. Um, you don't want to see a theatrical trailer. You get teased with an, an, an early theatrical trailer, trailer, and then you somewhat expect that pretty soon they're going to have another one that's even better, and then another one that's even better. That's your marketing teams trying to get access to the production material as soon as they possibly can. And when those shots are a composite of you know live film and um, editorial and visual effects, um, you know trying to actually get into that right content that has the right access, boy, that can be quite a challenge. And for the listeners out there, this is all driven these days largely um, it, with data because data and metadata for all of these assets that are going through these workflows, these things are actually defined, they're, like access control is, is defined by, um, by data. So the question is, it's like, great, I just shot, you know, uh, 35 uh, shots of this one scene, um, but two of them are the ones that are interesting. So which, we don't want people looking at all of the other 34, we want them to look at the two that are out there. Well, what's defining that metadata about the shot? So we need the, the right data moving through those uh, supply chains. And later on, there may be all of these other legal clearance questions that are going on. So um, legally, is this something we can use in marketing or not? Or if you have big talent that is, is on a production, can they or can they not um, uh, be able to intervene? And do they have a say in whether or not that gets used? So these are all things that actually happen intra-supply chain. That's just in production. And then you finally get over into kind of distribution and uh, imagine now I'm going to simplify all this. Someone has now dropped off the final package and I'm going to oversimplify this because uh, it plays out more complicated in the in media entertainment supply chains. But imagine uh, this final product gets up and it's like, great, ta-da, here's, you know, uh, Star Trek 20 and we've just produced it uh, for the United States. Um, and the whole thing was shot, uh, all the actors spoke English, and uh, we're done. Well, as you can imagine, you're not going to distribute that just in the United States. You're going to do distribution everywhere in the world where possibly you have Star Wars, Star Trek fans. So uh, if you're going to basically take that finished product, you now have to consider, I need to have that available in every language in the world. Does that mean I have dubbing in every language in the world? Am I doing subtitling for every language in the world? And do I have assets and marketing assets? And when the, sh the, the opening scene comes up and it lists the title of the film, what's that going to be? Because I could tell you right now, Spider-Man isn't Spider-Man in every country of the world. It, the word doesn't even mean anything in some places. So all of these films have to have unique titles everywhere in the world where they're shot, which means they're going to have unique assets tied to each one of these things. And um, so just one film is going to be super complex. I'll use... The original Spider-Man, because um, we did some uh, very specific uh, asset analysis, just for that original film um, in major components, not all the small minor components um, that you would do in, in visual effects, but on the major components, like, hey, the, the film titles changed, 
We had this trailer, had over 3,000 core assets just to composite into the film in distribution. And so you add all of that up. Now you have to have all this metadata and data that's tied to each one of these assets so that uh, imagine if your goal is that I'm delivering Spider-Man into Spain and I need to give them all the right Spanish metadata and they need to have all the right Spanish assets and they need the right correct cut of that film, that version of the film that actually has the uh, Spanish uh, subtitles or dubbing with it. That is a tremendous amount of data orchestration that you're going to see. And that doesn't happen just in broadcast. That's happening in DVD and digital markets. And as you can imagine, every company, whether it's Google or iTunes and whatnot, has different standards for what they like to, to see getting to them. And so they could do their work in exhibition. And I could tell you that categorically because Sony was on both sides of that uh, supply chain, uh, both in the distribution and it did exhibition. So it had digital exhibition in Crackle had uh, 155 linear channels at the time. Uh, and so we would sometimes be delivering content to ourselves. And so you see this kind of like digital supply chain go all the way through and has all these complexities, which is uh, drives to this reason why we have all of these data organizations uh, trying to provide standards in media and entertainment. So in media entertainment, I personally work with more than a dozen standards organizations dealing with trying to figure out how to make this more more common so for us to have common idea and for us to really be able to kind of try to interchange data from one to the other. But um, uh, but as you can imagine, that is a a hard road. It's been a long road. Um, all of them have made good progress and they're all working hard. And it gets us so far. But when you have, you know, just in the US over six hundred TV productions with all of these independent companies every year going on right now. As you can imagine, it's pretty hard to get the standards. So you're going to end up with messy data flowing through the pipes. And at the end of the day, when you get to exhibition, um, it's got to be right. Can you give me an example of how your work directly impacts the bottom line in the movie industry? So maybe a story where uh, your work helped push the profit margins for one film or cut costs for another film? So I'll use as an example, um, there's this concept, if you've heard it out there, I'll explain it. There's a concept, if you ever hear from media entertainment, called day and date. And what that means, if you ever hear the word day and date, is that the day and the date that we were a, a, a film or a television show is released, it is released everywhere in the world all at the same time. Now, as you can imagine, that has one benefit of kind of fighting piracy, right? So if I can get ahead of the pirates, then I have the opportunity to be first. And then that actually theoretically uh, drives, um, you know, maybe some more people to actually be in a subscription or a paid for scenario. So that's the general concept, right? I'm in a, in a market for whatever market is I'm releasing it. So you could actually somewhat theoretically actually kind of have day and date multiple times. So I could, if it was a film, I could do day and date theatrically, which is means it's in every theater or most every theater in the world. You know, we'll put a caveat on how large the market is. Uh, and then it could later on be day and date. We're releasing it globally all at the same time in television. Um, and, and why would it be that it would be difficult to do that? Well, if you go back to the step before it's if I release it everywhere, it means all the metadata has to be done. It means all of the subtitling has to be done. It means all the dubbing has to be done. All of those steps that need to that you could in the previous world wait and do later. Like let's get the 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 you know the U.S. product out, and then we'll go make all those dubs and subtitles and fix all the metadata and, and determine kind of releasing and all of that. 
Um, so there's a lot of complexity in trying to figure that out. So what I kind of just expose is actually two things in the same moment. If we use this kind of releasing strategy, um, being really, really clever and smart about when you release a film, um, which is a releasing, like picking the date, picking the date is a big deal um, in the film world. Um, and is if you, if I just took a step back and just asked your listeners to imagine for a second, what are all the data points that you would want to know if you were to pick a date, you're going to pick, you know, uh, you're going to be responsible. Uh, let's say Star Trek 20, but Star Trek 20, again, we'll use that example, the most amazing and sought after film of 2020. Okay. This is, you're just going to imagine that. Right. Um, and, uh, and I'm making this up, just making sure everyone knows I'm not broadcasting <laughs> the, the a product called uh, Star Trek 20 make, make believe title. Um, so imagine all the information you would want to know. You would want to know, great. When can the film be done? You're going to want to know um, what audience uh, affinity does it have? And when do they like to, they typically go to the theater. You might want to know what weekends have other major films coming out that I would compete against. You might want to know time of year. So I'll use as an example, um, there are times of year in uh, certain countries like in Europe where the summers are beautiful and gorgeous and everyone wants to be outside. People don't stay inside and watch television. And they, may, they have different patterns for going to the theater. So there's all of these things about the audience and the product that you would want to know for picking that date. And if I gave you an example of how important that picking that date can be, and this was absolutely a, a data-influenced decision. If you go back, um, the one of the most profitable films of all time, the, the Sony Library, is actually the original Spider-Man. Um, you know, if you compare kind of time and you know, uh, com- you know, give it a fair comparison in time. Um, one of the, the best performing films of all time. It's at box, box office records at the time, and I encourage everyone to go look it up. They picked a really clever date, and they were the first ones to do it, which was picking a date before Memorial Day weekend. And no one had done that before. And they, if you looked at the, the day in the analysis, you're like, hey, wait, this is actually a really big, long weekend, and it doesn't have a lot of competition. Let's, let's release it then. And, and going into it, a lot of people thought that was a very strange decision. Now you'll realize, that look, look over the last 10 years, there's a lot of big films now that get released over that weekend. So that weekend isn't as good anymore um, as Greenfield as it was when they made that original decision. So you can see just in this whole releasing area, just releasing the film, you have both workflow components that are critical for you to play both offense and defense. And you have uh, analytic information for you to be able to make good decisions about um, when you release the film. And that absolutely uh, can have an effect on, on the needle. Uh, so hopefully that was a good uh, good example. Um, I definitely give you a couple others uh, that would, uh, would would certainly kind of make the point about uh, why getting it right is important. Yeah, I'd love to hear them. So I had this experience once at, at a Sony because I was I was at a horizontal role and I was working with two groups, and uh, I was in a location where the uh, the channel operation group and a distribution it was in a smaller office distribution group were literally sitting a floor apart as they had for years, um, and uh, in, through an atrium. So literally you could look up, if, if you looked up, you could see the person working in the channel operations group could actually see the person in the licensing group above in kind of two different business units. So this, the person uh, in the network channel group has now licensed content 
from Sony Pictures Distribution. You following me? So this is the channel group. They have a, a channel like ABC and uh, we'll just imagine AXN, which is one of the Sony channels. And they've licensed content from, uh, from the distribution group. And maybe we'll use, just for fun, we use a, a film or a, a television series that was produced by uh, Netflix, actually, that Sony Pictures was distributing, which is House of Cards. So internationally, Sony uh, distributes House of Cards, um, which might seem weird today because Netflix does international distribution. But back when they originally produced that show, they did not have um, uh, presence in international markets. So they want to make money on it. So they gave it over to Sony and said, great, you guys license it uh, out for us. So imagine uh, you have the distribution group having House of Cards a channel that wants to license it. They license it now from Sony. Um, and what actually was happening is that uh, the Sony distribution group sent out a package like they would send to anybody else in the world. And uh, even though we had all, so we had all the metadata and whatnot, but it went kind of through the legal group and the sales group. And uh, when it got to the, the channel operations group, they literally started over from scratch like they did if, and they, if they received any piece of content from anywhere else in the world. And they were like, great. So what show is this? And where can we find the metadata? Oh, we better look that up on INDD. Let's go find. And literally, the company has every single piece of information ever about this title. Um, and we were having this conversation. And uh, um, as we were going through this, I'm like, have you ever asked uh, downstairs, whether or not they just give you the data. And they're like, oh, I don't think, I don't know. Maybe, I don't think they'd give it to us. And so um, we set up that conversation and they're like, yeah, sure, you could have the data. And just like that, um, we were able to kind of make the data flow. But that just is, is to give you a sense inside of a company that's very well organized, um, it, it, uh, it's still difficult because so many of the other parties out there just don't operate at that level of sophistication. So those folks that are in exhibition, most downstream, are actually used to having to deal with data coming in from every single source imaginable. Um, and it's all over the place. A big studio probably gives them really good data. And the mom and pop shop that's doing uh, you know, a production in Budapest, Hungary, um, may not have the same data standards uh, or even video quality standards. And so... Uh, the industry has actually created these kind of like data wrangler and asset wrangler positions and have had that for a long time. So I know that that's something that, you know, you, you see now um, a lot of companies, they actually have like a data wrangler or data management team. Uh, but these organ these groups have actually existed for a long time in media entertainment to try to deal with uh, all of the different data they get from all these different sources. That was Eric Iverson. I'm back here with Mark Marinelli. Uh, Mark, any last word that you can leave us with? The key takeaway for me was how complex the data supply chain really is for media and entertainment um, and how balkanized so many of the relevant data feeds are across silos. Uh, everyone listening to this podcast has some degree of data disarray in their organization, but to hear what Eric had to deal with and how he dealt with it brings some confidence that this is a, a tractable problem. Um, rather than try and apply a top-down standardization for all these different data sources, that which would have been impossible given the level of like fragmented ownership and collection in all of the systems that he has to gather data from, Eric was able to accommodate the variety 
and gain tremendous leverage uh, for his business by being able to corral all that data together. Um, so I, I think there's really a lesson in there for all of us, regardless of how insurmountable the, the challenge may seem and how many different constituents and stakeholders we have in the data um, that this actually is doable. And the degree with which we can provide extremely targeted analytic outcomes from all of these data is something I think Eric uh, gave us some some high confidence in and, and some good examples. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks to Eric Iverson for sitting down with us. And thank you, Mark, uh, for your insights. Thank you. This has been the Data Masters podcast from Tamer. Thanks to everybody who's listening. <laughs> <laughs>